Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 210, The Enablers, Part 1. Now, if you're one of my Patreon uh, listeners, you go, wait a minute, haven't I heard this one before? And yes, you have. I published this last September, but I wanted to share it with a broader audience and just to show them exactly what kind of uh, content you would get on Patreon. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash Russian rulers and you'll find almost 40 episodes already uh, recorded for you to listen to about things like the Romanov sisters, this series, the enablers. And I'm going to publish a few more of these. It's a three part series and I really hope you enjoy it. So remember, if you really want to hear more Russian history, go to patreon.com slash Russian rulers and you'll find a vast library of different types of topics about my love, Russian history. Enjoy, and see you next time. Welcome to Russian Rulers History, Patreon edition. The Enablers, Part 1. Today, we begin a new series about the people who served under Joseph Stalin, allowing him to gain a stranglehold on the Soviet Union. Part 1 will focus on three men, Vyacheslav Molotov, Lazar Kaganovich, and Sergo Orzhekhanidze. One person who will not be part of this series, who was one of the uh, enablers, you might call them, is Marshal Zhukov, who will get his own episode down the road. My sources for this series include Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar by Simon Seabag Montefiore, On Stalin's Team, The Years of Living Dangerously in Soviet Politics by Sheila Fitzpatrick, A Failed Empire, The Soviet Union in the Cold War from Stalin to Gorbachev by Vyadislav Zubak, and A History of Russia by Ryazanovsky and Steinberg. Vyacheslav Mikhailovich Skriabin known to the world as Molotov, was born in Kukara, near Perm, on March 9, 1880, as the son of a butter churner. Before we move on to detail his life, despite numerous claims to the contrary, Vyacheslav Skriabin is not related to the famous Russian composer Alexander Skriabin. Now, some have alleged that he was Alexander's second cousin, but that simply is not true. Molotov's early years were nondescript. He was considered a shy young man, having been educated in a secondary school in Kazan. By 1906, Molotov had joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, which would eventually split into the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, with Vyacheslav joining the more radical group led by Lenin. Molotov would be arrested for the first time in 1911, sentenced to exile for two years. On his return, he would join the editorial staff of the Bolsheviks' fledgling newspaper, Pravda. It is here that Molotov would meet Joseph Stalin. But they would not become friends quite yet. In 1915, Molotov was arrested yet again. This time, he was sent to Irkutsk, where he escaped almost immediately. Molotov returned to Petrograd, where he became a Bolshevik committee member where he would become a protege of Stalin. During the Russian Civil War, Molotov would serve in Ukraine before being called 
back to Moscow by Lenin in 1921. He then was to marry Paulina Zemchuzina. She would play a pivotal role in her husband's life. Her arrest for treason in 1949 would try Vyacheslav's devotion to Stalin. By 1922, Molotov would become a non-voting member of the Politburo. He was considered somewhat of a slow-minded bureaucrat by Lenin and Bukharin. When Stalin became the general secretary of the Bolshevik party in 1922, Molotov would become his second-in-command. While the relationship was always one where Stalin was the leader, Vyacheslav felt comfortable criticizing the boss. After Stalin succeeded Lenin with the latter's death in 1924, Molotov would become a staunch supporter of his boss, along with Klement Voroshilov and Sergei Orzhekhanidze, two men we will be talking about in the future, one shortly. Fighting with Stalin against Leon Trotsky first, then against Lev Kamenev and Grigory Zinoviev, ending with Nikolai Bukhanin, Vyacheslav would prove to be a very powerful ally. Molotov was vastly underestimated by his and Stalin's enemies. I love the description of Vyacheslav by Simon Sebag Montefiore in his book, Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar. Quote, The only man to shake hands with Lenin, Hitler, Himmler, Goring, Roosevelt, and Churchill, Molotov was Stalin's closest ally. Nicknamed Stone Arse for his indefatigable work rate, Molotov loved to correct people ponderously and tell them that Lenin himself had actually given him the sobriquet, Iron Arse. Small, stocky, with a bulging forehead, chilling hazel eyes, blinking behind round spectacles, and a stammer when angry, or talking to Stalin, Molotov, 39, looked like a bourgeois student, which he had indeed been. Even among a Politburo of believers, he was a stickler for Bolshevik theory and severity, the Robespierre of Stalin's court. During the early 1930s, it was Molotov, under Stalin's orders, who was partly responsible for the forced confiscation of food from the Ukrainian people. This would trigger the Holodomor, the man-made famine that would cost the lives of over 4 million people, and some claim it was as high as 10 million. We never really will know the true number. In 1936, Molotov would have a falling out with Stalin, which, given the time, put him in danger. The Great Purge was only a year away. Molotov took a quote-unquote vacation by the Black Sea, always watched by the NKVD. Stalin, though, changed his mind and brought his friend back to Moscow later that year. During the years of 1937 and 1938, the Soviet Union was in the grips of the Great Terror, and no one was more involved than Molotov. When execution lists were created by members of the NKVD, they needed to be signed off by one of the Politburo members or by Stalin himself. Oftentimes, there were more than one signature on the documents. The man who signed the most, 372, Molotov. He signed death lists more often than the boss himself. War by now was in the air. The tension in Europe caused by the ascension of Adolf Hitler made Stalin very nervous. He felt that it was unlikely that the French and the British would fall into a treaty with the Soviet Union, 
So they began to focus on coming to an agreement for a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany. The initial negotiator for the deal was Maxim Litvinov, whose birth name was Meyer Henoch Wallach Finkelstein. Having a Jewish person negotiating with the Nazis was obviously a non-starter, and the Germans objected to him vociferously. On May 3, 1939, Stalin, desperate for a deal, replaced Litvinov with Molotov. This would lead to the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. When asked whether he was upset with getting replaced, Litvinov was quoted as saying, Do you really think I was the right person to sign a treaty with Hitler? Of course, as we know, Germany broke the treaty in 1941 with the invasion of the Soviet Union. On June 22nd of that year, Molotov, not Stalin, told the people of the country on the radio that the Germans had attacked the State Defense Committee was established with Stalin being elected chairman and Molotov made deputy chairman. He was the lead person in negotiating with the Allies to help support the war effort against the Nazis. Molotov was sent on a mission on May 8, 1942, under the code name Mr. Brown, to negotiate with the Allies. He arrived in Scotland aboard a four-engine bomber, and let me tell you, reading about this uh, mission... His life was in danger. I mean, they were flying over enemy territory. Uh, This was not a a simple mission to fly from Moscow to Scotland. When he arrived there, he took a train with British Foreign Minister Anthony Eden heading to London. His mission was to sign a treaty with definitive post-war borders agreed upon. The British, though, were unwilling, and Molotov refused to sign anything unless concessions were made. Stalin, knowing full well that without a treaty and supplies, the Soviet Union might not survive the Nazi onslaught. Stalin's response to Molotov was the following, according to Montefiore's book. Quote, one, we don't consider it an empty declaration, but regard it as important. Not bad, perhaps. It gives us a free hand. The question of borders will be decided by force. Two, it is desirable to sign the treaty as soon as possible and fly to America. Later that month, Molotov landed in Washington, D.C. and met with President Franklin Roosevelt. Returning to London, Molotov had his moments with Churchill that touched both men, but they knew in their hearts they would one day be enemies. Returning to Moscow, Molotov had agreements that would eventually be a second front and the critical land lease treaty with America which would bring desperately needed supplies for the Soviet war effort. Around the world, Molotov was considered the likely successor to Stalin, something that the always paranoid boss did not like. It marked the beginning of the end of Molotov's close relationship with Stalin. As author Sheila Fitzgerald puts it in her book on Stalin's team, quote, As far as the team was concerned, the first warning signal came in 1945, a few months after the end of the war, when Stalin savagely turned on Molotov for allegedly currying favor with the West. She further goes on to write, quote, Reading extensive daily summaries of this foreign press, Stalin discovered, to his fury, that it was full of rumors about his ill health and imminent retirement, and speculation about his heir. Molotov, well known in the West because of his travels as foreign minister, 
was the frontrunner for succession in many of these stories, which portrayed him as representing a new, strong Soviet Union, demanding an equal position among the great powers of the world, implicitly in contrast to the old, weak, and internationally marginalized country that Stalin led for the past two decades. Now, that wasn't going to sit well with the bosses, you might guess. The trouble from the Molotovs, and in particular his wife Polina, as I mentioned earlier, began in 1948 with the visit to Moscow of the future Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir. Polina Zemtrugina made a statement in Yiddish at the reception from Meir, proclaiming that she was, quote, a daughter of the Jewish people. When Israel decided to align itself with the United States instead of the USSR, Despite them being the first to acknowledge their independence, Stalin made the decision to send no support and not to allow immigration to the new country from the Soviet Union. Polina would be arrested in December 1948 and sentenced to five years in a gulag. There was nothing Vyacheslav could do to prevent this. She would not be freed until after Stalin's death in March 1953. The real reason for arresting Polina was to get compromising information on her husband, according to archives from the NKVD. She would give them no such material. As for Molotov himself, he was removed as the foreign minister in March 1949, replaced by one of his deputies, Andrei Vyzhinsky. He would get back into Stalin's good graces in 1950, but by 1951, things began to get dicey for the former number two man, and the Soviet leadership team. In October 1952, things started to get ugly and dangerous for Molotov and his comrade-in-arms, Mikoyan. At the plenary meeting of the Central Committee, Stalin laid into the two men, accusing them of all sorts of bizarre charges. Molotov took the brunt of the abuse, being charged with conspiring to, quote, to give Crimea to the Jews, unquote. Stalin also decided to replace the Presidium, the Central Committee's top body, with the Politburo. While Molotov and Mikoyan were among the new organization's 25 members, they were not included in the influential nine-man bureau. In December 1952, Stalin again attacked Mikoyan and Molotov, calling them employees of American imperialism. There are archival documents in Khrushchev's recollection that both men were not just in danger of losing their positions, but losing their lives. There was ample evidence that Stalin was planning another 1937-1938-like Great Purge. A special prison had actually been set up, waiting for the show trials to begin. Luckily for Molotov and Mikoyan, Stalin died in March 1953. The new leader was Georgi Malenkov, with Molotov, Nikolai Bulganin, and Lazar Kaganovich as his first deputies. Beria was maneuvering to get into the core group. One of his first actions was to return Polina to Molotov from her exile in Kazakhstan. No one the newly put-together team, put team trusted Beria, least of all Molotov. Khrushchev approached Molotov first about removing Beria, Someone, everyone on the team, was scared of. Within months, Beria would be arrested and executed. 
The team would begin to show signs of splintering, especially viewing Malenkov with growing disdain. Molotov joined the group that ousted Malenkov, led by Khrushchev. In turn, he was removed as the foreign minister in June 1956. This angered Molotov, and in 1957, he became part of a band to oust Khrushchev, known as the Anti-Party Group. It almost succeeded, but ultimately, Nikita would come out on top. Khrushchev would have Molotov expelled from the uh, Politburo, and in 1961, he would be thrown out of the Communist Party altogether. In 1962, Molotov would have the first of seven heart attacks. Even with his ill health, Molotov would live to the ripe old age of 96, dying in 1986 as the last surviving member of the 1917 October Revolution. Our second member of Stalin's enablers is Sergo Orzhokhinidze. Sergo Konstantinovich Orzhokhinidze was born on October 24, 1886, in Goresha, a village in the Kutes Governate, Georgia. His early life was tough as his mother, Eupraxia, died six weeks after Sergo was born, and whose birth name was actually Grigol. The family was destitute, which caused the young boy's father to send him to live with his brother's family in the same time. While father and son remained close, Sergo's father would die when he was just 10 years old. In 1903, Ozhuk would join the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. Again, as I said earlier, this would be the split between Bolshevik and the Menshevik parts. He would be arrested for the first time in 1905 after the revolution. It would certainly not be his last. In 1907, Ozhuk would be arrested for the third time. His cellmate, was Joseph Jugashvili, a.k.a. Stalin. They would become close friends, as not only were they in prison together, they were both from Georgia. In 1911, four years after escaping from his exile in Siberia, Sergo went to France, where he met Vladimir Lenin. In the following year, Orzokhenidze was voted into the Central Committee during the Prague Conference, also known as the Sixth All-Russian Conference of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. After heading back to Russia, he was arrested yet again, this time sent to exile in Yakutsk in eastern Siberia. It is here he would meet his wife, Zanadia. After the February 1917 revolution, he was released from exile and headed back to Petrograd, arriving in May. During the Russian Civil War, Orzokhenidze was active in both the northern and southern Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, because they resisted joining the Soviet Union in 1921, so they sent him in to deal with the situation. An invasion of the region by the Red Army was finally able to bring the rebellious regions under control. The three countries would be merged into the Trans-Caucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic, which enraged many Georgians. This delayed the formation of the USSR until March 1922, Orzhokhinidze would take the title of first secretary of that region until 1926. Over the coming years, he would be assigned to numerous jobs tied to the industrialization of the Soviet Union. His successes were numerous, which made him immensely popular amongst the people. 
Sergo's staff would also enjoy his protection from the purges that Stalin ordered in many parts of the Soviet economy. He would argue extensively with Stalin about this and deny that there were any so-called wreckers in his department. Stalin would get angrier and angrier about Orzokhanidze's lack of toughness, as he put it. In 1936, the Great Purges were on the precipice of starting. By then, and certainly in 1937, Orzokhanidze could not protect his people in the People's Commissariat of Heavy Industry, also known as the NTKP. Despondent, Sergei Orzokhanidze shot himself in the chest on February 18, 1937, two days before a Central Committee plenum was scheduled. Sergo Orzukanedze's family was targeted, with his brother Popolia being arrested and executed in November 1937. His wife was arrested and sent to a gulag, as well as his older brother, Constantine, who was summarily executed in 1938. Zenadia would be released in 1956, dying four years later. Now we turn to the third member of the enablers, Lazar Kaganovich. Lazar Mozievich Kaganovich, born on November 23, 1893, was raised in the small and remote town of Kabana in the Kiev governorate near Chernobyl. Lazar joined the Bolshevik party in 1911, six years after his brother Mikhail did, using the name Kosarovich. He was the youngest of six siblings, five brothers, and one sister. By 24, Kaganovich was given the command of the area around Nizhny Novgorod. According to Montefiore's biography of Stalin, he ran it like a dictator. It was also claimed by Montefiore that Kaganovich was the person most responsible for, quote, the machinery of what became Stalinism. During Stalin's fight against Trotsky, Kaganovich would prove to be a reliable ally as he had a deep-seated animosity against Leon. When Lazar showed his fellow Bolsheviks a copy of his first book, Trotsky dismissed it as being mediocre and the author a failure. Kaganovich's assignments included running Central Asia in 1924, Ukraine from 1925 until 1928, before joining the Politburo as a full member in 1930 at the 16th Congress. It has been said that Kaganovich was the first Stalinist when he stated, quote, Everyone keeps talking about Lenin and Leninism, but Lenin's been gone a long time. Long live Stalinism. When the Ukrainian farmers refused to go along with the collectivization of their farms, Iron Lazar, as he was called, led the reaction, the brutal response. It would lead to the Holodomor, the man-made famine that would cost millions of people their lives. Millions were also deported Tens of thousands shot or sent to the gulags. Whenever an uprising of the peasants occurred in the countryside, they would send Lazar to brutally put them down. His next assignment, after joining the Politburo, was to take over the leadership of Moscow from Molotov. Kaganovich would dive into his job with zeal. As Montefiore put it, quote, Iron Lazar began the vandalistic creation of Bolshevik metropolis, enthusiastically dynamiting historic buildings. When the Great Purges began in 1937, Kaganovich was one of Stalin's most brutal executors to rid the country of what he liked to call saboteurs. 
Sheila Fitzpatrick gives an excellent description of Iron Lazar during the purges in her book on Stalin's team. Quote, Gaganovich went to Chelyabinsk, Yaroslavl, Ivanova, the Donbass, and Smolensk to purge the local party committees. Always a bully, he did the job with more panache and fearsome effects than Andreev, shouting and hectoring. According to an NKVD eyewitness, he rolled into Ivanova on August 7, 1937, with an armed guard of 35 men on a train, immediately struck terror into the hearts of the local party bosses by refusing to go to the DACA that they had prepared for them, organized denunciations of these same bosses by their colleagues, personally supervised the arrests, and pushed the interrogators to get quick confessions, all the while checking in several times a day with Stalin on Moscow. Stalin would make sure when he had lists made up of so-called unmasked enemies, that anyone who was available for the Politburo, as I said before, would sign and comment on those condemned to die. On one list, the name of Marshal Iona Yakir appeared. Stalin wrote, quote, scoundrel and prostitute. Kaganovich thought it apropos to go one better by writing under that, the only punishment for the scoundrel riffraff and whore is the death penalty. What is sad about this is Yakir was a friend of Kaganovich. The fear of being a victim of the purge themselves drove men like Lazar to put friends and family to death without compunction. His own brother, Mikhail, who was people's commissar of the aviation industry, was a target. Lazar did nothing to save his brother. All he could do was warn him of his imminent arrest. On June 1, 1941, Mikhail committed suicide prior to the police arriving. In his job as the head of the railways during the purges, it is said that so many people were executed under him that many trains couldn't run and there was no one there to operate them. During the war, Kaganovich was one of the Politburo's most vigorous members and the only one who was injured after a bomb hit the building he was in. Numerous generals with him were killed. Lazar escaped with minor injuries. After the war, Kaganovich's bright star began to wane. While from 1944 to 47, Kaganovich was the minister for building materials, it wasn't the most glamorous job. It was necessary as the Soviet Union needed a significant rebuilding job, and Iron Lazar had a way of getting things done. When Stalin died in 1953, Kaganovich's position in the government lessened. As I mentioned before, in 1957, he, along with Molotov, Dmitry Shepilov and Georgi Malenkov tried to oust his former protege, Nikita Khrushchev. This, as they said before, was known as the anti-party group, and all of whom would be sent into internal exile and removed from the Communist Party. He would initially take the job as the director of small potash works in the Rurals before being forced to retire in 1961. Lazar Kaganovich would be the last survivor of Stalin's team, dying just months before the Soviet Union's collapse on July 25, 1991. He was 97 years old. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we review the lives of four more men who are part of Stalin's team. Sergei Kirov, Anastas Mikhoyan, Grigory or Georgi Malenkov, and Andrei Zhdanov. So until then, das vidanya.
y pasivo.